Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, welcome. We're really, really glad that you're here. I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, but before we get going, I want to take a moment. I just want to recognize and thank our volunteers, okay? You may not know this, but right now we have 198 people who are actively serving on one of our weekend volunteer teams, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and, it's, and it's not just 198, you know, uh, you know, stats, but it's 198 people. Okay, it's people like uh, Ryan and Sarah Spence who are right here to embarrass them. Uh, Ryan and Sarah both serve on our worship team. They're both massively gifted, uh, and they have two small kids. So we do our best not to have them serve the same weekend, except for last weekend when we were like, we don't have a code player, Ryan. Can you help us out? He was like, absolutely. So they're in here. They're both leading in rehearsal. Their kids are running around, and we're helping take care of them. It was just like a family moment. It was a moment where they're like, yeah, we want to play, and we have people from our church who love our kids. And here's what I love. Their, their kids are like, Mom and dad use their gifts to serve Jesus. That's just like normal for them. Like from five years old, they're just going to grow up being like, that's what disciples of Jesus do. They use their gifts to serve Jesus. So man, super grateful for you guys, for Ryan and Sarah Spence. Um, I think about Francis McCulley. Uh, so Francis was in our last service. So he and his wife joined our church about a year ago. Uh, and it hasn't been that long since they went to the Weekender and Francis joined our production team. He's now leading one of our production teams. He works in the AVL industry. So he said, hey, this is a talent I have. This is a gift that I have, and I want to use it to serve the church. And he does an incredible job. Um, I think about uh, Carter Phillips and Justin Logan, who are both in this crowd. It's embarrassing everyone today. Um, Carter and, and uh, Justin are both younger guys who stepped up and said, we will lead a center kids classroom. And just so you know, there's not a whole lot of guys that are like, I'm feeling called to four-year-olds. You know, like it just doesn't happen a whole lot. But they said, hey, we want to serve. And this is what they did. They jumped in and they now lead our upper elementary center kids classroom. And here's why that matters. That classroom is full of fourth grade boys. Okay. It is full of fourth grade boys. And do you know what fourth grade boys need? They need 28-year-old men in their life. That's what they need. They need godly older men that they can, they can watch and they can be like, oh, this is what it looks like to grow up and be a godly man. It looks like, man, serving your church. It, says, it looks like investing in the next generation. Man, my son is benefiting from that. So many of the other kids in our church. So, man, I'm grateful for Carter. I'm grateful for Justin. I think about people like um, Tammy Springer and Susan Hill, who were both here in the first service. They have started cooking home-cooked meals for every one of our weekenders. They just love hospitality. They love to cook. They said, let us do it. And so in our last weekend, it was this amazing spread. It was like this massive thing of pasta and salad and bread and the whole thing. It just felt so welcoming. It was like you came into this building and you could smell it. It smelled so good. It was like garlic bread, you know, is in the air. Um, and they just want to use their gifts to, to say to new people, hey, we're glad that you're here. We've thought about you. We've prepared for you. We want to put hospitality on display kind of at a, at a church-wide level. And so, man, I'm really grateful for them. And I could go on and on and on. So many of you, man, serve in, in an incredible way. You invest your time, your talent. You invest your gifts, man, to, to what is going on on here at Center Church. And so I just want to stop and I just want to say, man, three things. Man, we love you. Man, we're grateful for you. And we could not do the ministry that we do without you. So can we just take a minute and just give a round of applause for all of our volunteers? Um, and if you're here, maybe you're, maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I would, love to, I would love to join a volunteer team. I would like to meet more people. I'd like to model the importance of serving for my kids. I'd like to find a way to connect man, my unique gifts and my background to serving the Lord. And if that's you, then your next step is the weekender, okay? Your next step is the weekender. The weekender is how you learn like the why, the what, and the how of serving here. It's, it's, we explain to you why we do it, the way that we do it, how we do it, and how you can get involved. It's how you connect with a volunteer team 
team that matches your passions and your giftings, right? How you can really start to make a meaningful difference with your gifts here at Center Church. It's also a great way to meet new people, learn what we believe, and figure out what the right next step is for you. Here's what I say at the weekender all the time. There is no right next step. There's a right next step for you. And so what we want to do is figure out, based on your background and where you are, what is the right next step for you here at Center Church. We've got our next weekender coming up this weekend, okay? It's Friday night. It's Saturday morning right here in this room. So if you haven't already, I really want to encourage you to join us. It's a lot of fun. It's casual, kind of low-pressure environment. Man, we eat good food. We drink good coffee. You learn a lot. You meet some friends. And it has never been easier to sign up. So you see those cards on your chair that you put underneath your chair this point that say the weekender all you have to do fill that out drop it in the offering bucket later in the service and we will do the rest we'll get you signed up we'll send you an email uh, with all of the details but man, we would just love to get to know you better and we'd love to be able to help you connect your gifts to make a difference to one of our volunteer teams um, and so i just want to pray and i want to thank god for all of our volunteers and then we're going to jump into uh, mark together okay let's pray Lord Jesus, I thank you that um, you said of yourself in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I thank you for the 198 people who do that formally through one of our volunteer teams. God, I thank you for all the people that do that informally in so many ways, in their homes, with their kids, uh, in, an, in a missional community, out at their workplace. Lord, I just pray increasingly that we would be a church marked by service, service to one another, service to the war world, that we might be a bright light in this community. So Lord, as we look at Mark chapter 8, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. Starting in verse 11. So last week, we started a series in the Gospel of Mark that's going to take us from chapter 8 through chapter 10, okay? The Gospel of Mark is Peter's eyewitness account of the ministry and life of Jesus written down by a man named John Mark, okay? Hence the name Mark. And if you're here last week, uh, you know that we talked a lot about the compassion of Jesus, okay? We talked about his compassion for you and for me and the way that he meets our needs. And I got to be really honest with you, that's an easy sermon to preach, okay? Like that is a low-hanging fruit sermon, love kicking off series by talking talking about the compassion of Jesus. Who didn't want to hear about the compassion of Jesus, right? Well, unfortunately, this week we have to talk about something harder, which is the warnings of Jesus. Okay, last week was the compassion of Jesus. This week is the warnings of Jesus, just giving you a fair warning, okay? Um, so why are we doing this? Well, let me give you two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that we believe it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And so I'm just going to preach on what's next in the text, and I'm going to trust that God's going to use it in your life. We don't want to kind of cherry pick, pick and choose, because then we become like that guy that never does legs at the gym. You know that guy? You're like, man, that dude's got some killer biceps, but I don't think he could squat 115 pounds, right? We don't want to be that guy. We don't want to be chicken legs guy. We want to be holistic disciples who do leg day, okay? All my cross people are like, amen, you know? Um, and so, man, we're just going to walk through the Bible because we believe it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Here's the second reason that we're going to talk about the warnings of Jesus today. Because Jesus' warnings flow from his compassion. You see, Jesus warns you because he loves you. Isn't this true in your life? Don't you warn people that you care about? You don't warn people you don't care about, right? You certainly don't warn people that you hate. You're like, oh, I hope that, yeah, go ahead and do that. I, I can't wait to see what happens to you, right? Who do you warn the most? You warn the most the people you care about the most. I mean, parents and kids, right? If you're a parent here, you warn your kids more than anyone else in the world. Why? Because you care deeply about them. Here's, here's what we do when we warn one another. We say, hey, I see the pathway that you're on. I see the patterns developing in your life, and we know where that ends. And it doesn't end in a good place. You're dating a non-Christian. We know where that ends. Right? You're, you're, you're going to that website again. We, we know where that ends. You're, you're overspending. We know where that ends. You're, you're overworking and you're neglecting your spouse. We know where that ends. 
Here's the problem for me and for most of us. We tend to think that we are the exception to the rule. We tend to think that I'm the one person who can overwork, neglect my spouse, and have a strong marriage. Like I'm the one person who can just dabble with that website in college and it won't turn into a destructive pattern in my life. Like I'm the one person who can date a non-Christian and I really will change them. I have bad news. You're not the exception to the rule. In you know, 12 years of pastoral ministry at this point, I've seen so many people, man, train wreck their lives and their faith because they think that they're an exception to the rule. Here's what a warning ministry in the church looks like. I love you enough to warn you. You see, to love someone doesn't mean to say or do what's going to make them feel good in the moment. It, it means to say or do what is for their ultimate good. You know the difference? So in my kid's life, what they think is love is me letting them do whatever they want. But where's that going to end up? That's, that's going to end up in they're going to be undisciplined. They're going to make foolish choices. They're going to be unhealthy. They're not going to learn. Left to their own devices, my kids would watch television and eat junk food all day. Right? But like, you know, I have higher vision for their life. Like, I don't know, them learning to read. You know, like, and so I love them, so I won't let them do those things. Well, that's Jesus. His warning flows from his compassion. He warns us because he loves us. And today, he warns us not to become hard-hearted. Today, he warns us not to become hard-hearted. Now, it's kind of a churchy phrase, right? What does it mean to be hard-hearted? Well, I think the easiest way to understand is to look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees are Jesus' classic illustration of what it means to be hard-hearted. And in this passage, he's going to warn us, don't become like the Pharisees. Don't become hard-hearted like they are. Well, well, what were the Pharisees all about? Well, the Pharisees knew a lot about God. They had most of the Old Testament memorized, but they did not know God. You see, the Pharisees were religious, but they were not repentant. And what we find from this text is, is that can happen in our lives today. I mean, it is very possible to be in church, but not in Christ. It's possible to be religious but not repentant, to be baptized but not to be an actual believer, to have been born into a Christian family but never to have been born again into God's family. That is not what Jesus wants for you or for me or for our kids, and so he warns us. He says, hey, beware, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is walking in hard-heartedness. And so we're going to, man, we're just going to come in here, we're going to listen to Jesus together, and it's going to be a little bit of a challenging sermon, but just know Jesus warns us because he loves us, okay? Let's look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Now, in verse 10, we were told that Jesus left the Decapolis, which was an irreligious area, and he traveled to Dalmanutha, which was a religious area. So just imagine, imagine Jesus left Las Vegas and went to Mobile, Alabama, okay? That's what happened. And when Jesus arrives in Mobile, surprise of surprise, he's confronted by arrogant religious people. Not that that's ever happened before, right? And, and the Pharisees come right out, and the text tells us they want to argue with him. The Pharisees did not come humbly to learn. They did not come as a child. They came as a critic. They did not come wanting to be genuinely changed and transformed. They came wanting Jesus to affirm their preconceived notions. Which begs the question, how do you approach Jesus? How do I approach Jesus? Do you approach Jesus in humility, saying, change me, teach me, correct me, transform me, redirect me in the ways that I need to be redirected? Or do you come to Jesus asking him to affirm your preconceived notions? This is what I've already decided I want to do. This is already decided what I want to believe. This is already what I've decided is right. So Jesus, I just want you to affirm what I already think. And if you don't affirm it, I'm just going to reject you. That was the Pharisees. They didn't want to be changed by Jesus. They just wanted Jesus to affirm what they already believed. Verse 11, the Pharisees came seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So what did they want? They wanted a dramatic sign from heaven to prove himself. Jesus called down fire like on Mount Carmel. Do something crazy. Do something spectacular. What did they want? 
They wanted a spiritual experience that was beyond the word of God. You see, Jesus had been preaching for two years at this point. He'd been giving them the word of God. It wasn't enough for them. They said, we want a spiritual experience beyond the word of God. Bring a massive sign, Jesus. Give us some sort of existential experience. That's what they wanted. The word of God was not enough for them. And if we aren't careful, that same thing can happen in our lives today. Right? We can, we can have the Bible, we can have the scriptures, and yet we can seek out some secondary experience. Maybe it's, it's an, an emotion at a conference. Maybe it's a confluence of events. Whatever it is, it makes you say, that is the will of God. And that is God speaking to me. But friends, I just want to caution you that it's a very, very dangerous way to live your life. Because we simply have no way of discerning the legitimacy of these secondary experiences. Right? We don't know if that was the Holy Spirit or that was the tacos you had for lunch, right? Like we just have no, if it's not in the scriptures, we don't actually know if it was from the Lord. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Satan often masquerades as an angel of light. What does that mean? It means he appears to be from God. Every cult founder in the world starts by saying, God told me. Every single one of them. So the Pharisees were like, give us some sort of experience beyond the word of God. And man, we, we're tempted to do this today. How do we do this today? Well, Sometimes it's like, man, I want the word of God plus the tradition of the church. Sometimes it's like, I want the word of God plus like kind of my own spiritual experience from the Lord. And you might say, well, I don't do this, right? I would never do that, Josh. Well, let me give you a couple examples of how I've seen this play out. Okay, one's a very obvious example. When I was in seminary, there was a peer of mine in the PhD program who was caught cheating. I mean, he was, he was at a seminary getting a doctorate to be a pastor, and he was caught cheating. And when he was confronted about this, he said, well, God called me to get a PhD. Ergo, I had to cheat. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to get it. And it's like, no, man. Like, God called you to be honest. I have one of the commandments for that. You wanted to get a PhD. And yet, you see how he got that twisted? And he justified, man, going, going beyond, going in contrast to the word of God because of this personal experience that he had. Unfortunately, I've heard this many, many times. Well, my wife and I are, are no longer in love. I'm not sure I was really in love with her in the first place. We met when we were young, and we're just different people than we were then. But this is also, there's this other woman who really gets me, who I really love this woman, and God wants me to be happy. And so God, it's okay with God for me to get divorced, to divorce my wife. I have peace about it. And here's what I always want to say. You shouldn't. It doesn't matter if you have peace about something that is in direct contradiction to the word of God. God does not want you to get divorced. He does not want you to break your marriage vows. He does not want you to damage your children so that you can run off with the woman that you met at the gym. And yet, so many people say that all the time. Well, I have a peace about it from the Lord. Well, you shouldn't. Like, if it's, if it's in contradiction to the word of God, we should not have peace about it. Um, this one will be a little closer to home. I've met people, and, and I'll talk to them about, man, you know, are you, are you involved in a church here locally? And they're like, well, no, but like, I just don't really feel like the Lord wants to be part of a church right now. And I'm like, no, he definitely does. <laughs> you don't have to be part of our church. You can be part, but like, I have like, a hundred verses that like, no, he definitely wants you to be in a committed local church community. But man, don't we do this? Like, don't we sort of like, well, the word of God plus if I have some sort of experience, if I feel conviction, if I feel like doing it, then I'll do it. And Jesus is like, you need nothing beyond the word of God. Okay, this is what theologians refer to as the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture means that scripture is the only inspired, inerrant, and therefore final authority for Christians with all other authorities being subservient to Scripture. When we put anything else on the same level as Scripture, we set ourselves up for trouble. And this is a little bit of a tension, because on the one hand, you should be seeking to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. 
You should be listening for that still small voice of the Holy Spirit urging you and directing you in something. But here's what I want to encourage you with, and I want to be really, really clear in your minds. The Spirit will always lead you along the pathway of Scripture and never outside of it. The Spirit will always lead you alongside the pathway of Scripture and never outside of it because He wrote it. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. He led the writers of Scripture, and so He's never going to lead you or me to do something that contradicts it. Okay, so we just need to be careful that we don't make the same mistake that these Pharisees made. The Pharisees are like, yeah, Jesus, your word's not enough. I need an experience. Right? We need to be careful that we don't do the same thing in our own ways. Verse 12, and Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. I'm a big sire at home, and my wife gets all me about it. I'm like, I'm just trying to be like Jesus, babe. That's all I'm trying to do. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. So let's ask a question. Why was Jesus so exasperated by the criticism of the Pharisees? Was he like really insecure? You know, was he, could he just not deal with, with hard words? Like, no, obviously Jesus wasn't insecure. So why was he so frustrated? Because a critical spirit exposes a hardened heart. A critical spirit exposes a hardened heart. When we have a critical spirit, it exposes that we do not really understand the gospel. When we have a critical spirit, it just exposes we have a very small understanding of the gospel. How do I mean? Well, think about it. No one who has really grasped just how sinful they are and how deserving of condemnation they are, and yet how they've been saved by the extravagant grace of God at the cost of the blood of Jesus, and they have an internal inheritance that is, that is undefiled waiting for them in heaven, no one who has experienced that can then look at others with a hyper, hypercritical spirit as though they're somehow so much better than them. Jesus put it this way, he who has been forgiven much loves much. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, am I a critical person? Are you a critical person? Do you have a critical spirit towards your boss, towards your spouse, your coworkers, or, or towards the church? I've met people who seem to think their calling from God is to criticize the church. Hear me out. It's not. That's not in the spiritual gifts list, okay? It's just not. Like, does the church have flaws? Absolutely. Does the church... Has the church missed things? Absolutely. Does the church need to grow and be purified? Always. But man, the church is the bride of Christ. And so we need to be careful having a super hypercritical spirit towards Jesus's bride. If you have a hypercritical spirit towards my bride, we're not going to be friends. We're just not. You know, I'm going to be like, you're not coming over to the house. Like, I don't, like, don't want to invest in you, right? Well, we got to be careful how we talk about the Lord's bride. All right, do you have a, do you feel snubbed really easily? Let's get a little more personal. Right? Like, are you that person who's just always feeling excluded? Do, do you do small relational, do small relational things turn into big relational things for you? Like, do you have a hard time assuming the best about other people? Do you have a hard time inserting trust into the gap when one of your expectations is not met? And if the answer is yes, you probably kind of have a spirit like the Pharisees. You're just like, so focused on everyone else's flaws and all the ways that other people have hurt you that like you're, you're missing the fact that Jesus is like, hey, take the log out of your own eye and then you can take the little tiny speck out of your brother's eye. This is really convicting for me because I see this in myself. Like I see a critical spirit in me and I'm like, oh, I don't want that. I don't want a critical spirit in my life. You know what I try to call it to make myself feel better? I, I try to be like, well, I, I'm just discerning. But do you know the difference between criticism and discernment is? Humility. Humble people are discerning, proud people are critical. 
Humble people are discerning, proud, proud people are critical. So here's the thing. I want you to grow in maturity. I want you to grow in discernment. I want you to be able to know truth from error. I want you to be able to know right from wrong. This is of the Lord. This is not of the Lord. But what I don't want us to become as a church is just a group of people who are hypercritical of everyone and everything. Because do you know what eventually happens when you have a whole group of people who are hypercritical of everyone and everything? They're hypercritical of one another, and everybody hates it, and everybody leaves. Or you tear yourself apart. I've heard it said before that um, when you are a babe in Christ, not like you're really good looking, but like you're young in Christ, when you are a babe in Christ, you are hyper aware of everyone else's flaws. When you become mature in Christ, you are hyper aware of your own flaws. And you're much more patient and you're much more compassionate, you're much more gentle with others. And so our desire here is to have a group of people that is discerning and patient, that is convicted of truth and compassionate towards others. That as Paul would say to Timothy, that, that corrects those who are in error with gentleness and respect. That is not what the Pharisees had. They had a proud, critical spirit that did not understand how in need of grace that they were. So Jesus is exasperated by them. Verse 13, and he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus did what we have a hard time doing. He just walked away. He just walked away. He didn't argue with them. He didn't try to prove himself to them. He didn't try to make them happy. He just walked away. If you read through the Gospels, here's what you'll find. Jesus was very gentle with humble, broken people. I mean, I mean, incredibly gentle. Jesus was very engaging with spiritual seekers. Think Nicodemus. Jesus was very patient, very, very patient with imperfect disciples. Think Peter. Jesus had no time for arrogant religious people. Just, I mean, just, he just, literally, they asked for a sign. He's like, I don't have time for this. Gets in the boat, sails away. It's kind of a bold move. Right? Why? You see, Jesus was on earth to do his father's will, not to assuage the complaints of the Pharisees. He, he didn't come to make people happy. He came to save people from their sins. But unfortunately, in the church world, we often flip this upside down. And in, instead of pursuing the will of the father for our church, we, we try to keep everyone happy. And whoever complains the loudest gets the most attention. But that is not in the model of Jesus. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. He did not say, go therefore and make everyone happy. And unfortunately, a lot of times, making disciples and making people happy are in contradiction with one another. They're competing. And so our conviction as a church is to be gentle, is to be gracious, and just to say, hey, look, we are a church for anybody, but we get that we're not the church for everybody. And so, man, if, if you just have, whatever it is, if you just have like a really big issue with it, like we love you, we're gonna help you get connected to another church, but we're just not gonna, like the, the boat is not gonna get steered around and we're not gonna have whiplash because of like, well, the Johnsons are mad about how loud the music is and the Smiths are loud about the color of the carpet. And, it, and it's just like, ah, it's just like, we're just gonna do the Father's will and, and, and walk in the footsteps of Jesus and be man, gentle and gracious and kind with one another, be engaging with spiritual seekers, be patient with the imperfections of one another, but we're just not gonna bend over backwards to make hard-hearted religious people happy, Okay. And, and I think we have good precedent for that. All right, verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. This is exactly the kind of thing I would do. You know, sometimes my wife is like, hey, have you packed for the trip? And I'm like, what? You know, it's like packing for trips is my least favorite part of trips. Um, I routinely lose all sorts of things. I don't know if you're this way. I lose little things and big things. So, you know, like everybody loses their keys and their phone and stuff. I lose like pairs of pants. It's like, it's kind of, I literally said to Meredith, I was like, you know, I'd be a very easy person to rob because I wouldn't be sure if you robbed me or if I lost it. You know, I just like literally wouldn't know the difference. Um, well, that's the disciples. In all the hustle and bustle of ministry, they had forgotten to pack bread. So there's like one loaf of bread for 13 people, which isn't going to go very far. All right, verse 15, and he, Jesus, cautioned them, so warning, cautioned them saying, watch out, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
So Jesus took this opportunity to teach his disciples a spiritual principle. He said, watch out, beware, be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. You see, one of the things that we have to understand about Jesus is he had a warning ministry. Be an interesting thing to do with your missional community this week. Just go through the Gospels and find all the places where Jesus is warning people. It is constant. Or go through the, the New Testament and just look for all the phrases like beware, watch out, stay alert, be on guard, be diligent. The Bible is full of warnings. Why? Because it is possible to be genuinely convinced of something and to be genuinely wrong. I mean, look at the Pharisees. They were genuinely convinced that they were right and they were genuinely wrong. See, in our society today, most people believe that if you genuinely believe something, then it's right for you. But the Bible just re rejects that. And it's helpful to know the difference between pluralism and relativism, okay? Let's put on our hats for a second, our thinking hats. The Bible supports pluralism in society. What that means is that the Bible says no one should be coerced into believing something. So you shouldn't be forced by the government to believe X, Y, or Z, right? Christians are big fans of religious liberty, okay? That, that no one should be coerced to believe something. One of the reasons for that is the Bible says it's not even possible. Like, becoming a Christian is not something that can be forced by the government. It's, it's, a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so pluralism in society is, is something the Bible supports. That is different than relativism. Relativism is the idea that all spiritual perspectives are equally valid and true. And Jesus rejects that. Otherwise, why would he be warning them? Well, the Pharisees genuinely believe it, so it's right for them. And Jesus is like, no, you can be genuinely convinced of something and you can be genuinely wrong. And so what do we have to do? Well, we have to be willing to warn one another. We have to be willing to say like, hey, I know that you really think it's okay for you to be doing this thing and living in this way that's contrary to scripture. I'm just telling you, it's not. Like the scriptures are really clear on this. Like, I know you think that you're the exception to the rule. You're not. Like, you need people in your life that love you enough to warn you, just like Jesus loves us enough to warn us. So what is Jesus warning us about? What's, it says there in the text, if you see it, he's warning us about the leaven of the Pharisees. A modern equivalent to leaven would be like yeast, anybody that bakes. You know, you, you take yeast, you work it into a lump of dough, and the yeast works through the dough, and it changes the nature of, of all the dough. Maybe a parallel illustration would be cancer cells. So cancer cells are small, but man, they spread, and, and if left unchecked, they can destroy the entire body. Jesus is saying, hey, that is how the attitude and character of the Pharisees works. Jesus is saying, beware a little bit of pride. Beware a little bit of contempt for your neighbor. Beware a little bit of picking and choosing from God's word. Because what starts small can grow and can become very, very big and can come to impact the entire whole. Verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. His classic disciples. I love this. This is like exactly what we would do, right? They were so focused on their immediate needs that they didn't take time to meditate on the spiritual truth that Jesus was imparting to them. Can you relate that a little bit? It's like, man, we can get so focused on like work and school and kids and keeping the house up and the vacation that we're planning for and what are we going to do with that bonus that we just got? Man, that, that we don't take time to just meditate and sit on sit in the word of God and learn from Christ. That was the disciples. So Jesus comes at him a little bit. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? So here's the question. Are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts like the hearts of the Pharisees? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Jesus reminded the disciples of these previous miracles. He's like, you were there. 
All right, guys, let's do some math. 5,000 people, five loaves of bread. Fed them all, leftovers. 4,000 people, seven loaves of bread. Fed them all, leftovers. 13 people, one loaf of bread. I think we're going to be okay. You know, it's like, it's like if the guy who can multiply bread is with you in the boat, you're going to be okay. You don't need to worry about bread, right? And it's funny because we get to read it from this perspective, but the truth is, man, we do the same thing all the time. What, what happened? What was the problem? The disciples failed to take the information they knew about Jesus and apply it to their lives, right? They knew that he multiplied. He wasn't telling them something new. They were there. It had just happened. But they failed to take what they knew about Jesus and apply it to their lives and experience transformation. You see, they traded transformation for information. And I think that can happen to us. We can know so many things about the Lord. We can know so much about the Bible. We can know about God's faithfulness, about his promises, about his character, about his goodness. And yet, we can fail to apply that in the daily things of our lives. I'll give you a couple examples. Man, we, we can say that we have been forgiven an infinite debt and yet have such a hard time forgiving someone that's hurt us in such a smaller way, right? Man, we, we say that we are the beneficiaries of extraordinary generosity, that for our sake, Jesus became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich, and yet we bristle at the idea of being generous to God's church, right? We can say that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast, and yet we can live our lives like our religious performance is what earns our standing with God. We can be a lot like the disciples, we can fail to take the information that we have and apply it, which results in transformation. Any area of our lives that we have information that isn't turning into transformation, we're walking in hardness of heart. That's what it means to be hard-hearted. To know a lot about God, but to not actually know God. To know things about his character, but not have it actually translate into transformation in our lives. That's what happened to the Pharisees. Jesus warned his disciples. He's like, hey, are your hearts hardened as well? And that's what can happen in our lives today. So what I want to do is I want to back up a little bit. I just want to give us, man, two warnings, two ways that we harden our hearts today, okay, that we might not do that, that we might turn from that way and walk in a better way. Here's letter A. We harden our hearts when we forsake community. We harden our hearts when we forsake community. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So a couple things I want you to notice there. First, uh, this is a warning, right? Again, the warning ministry of the Bible. It's a warning. It says, take care, be on guard, be alert, or this might happen. Second, this is addressed to believers, brothers and sisters. So this is addressed to, to people who are saved, to people who have been justified by the work of Jesus Christ, who have repented and believed and born again, are going to heaven Hebrews is still saying your heart can still be hardened. You can still walk in hardness of heart. Third, this text assumes that the natural movement of our hearts is towards hardening, not away from it. That it's towards hardening, not away from it. Here's what this text is, is saying. If we don't choose to live in community, we are choosing to harden our hearts. If we don't choose to live in community, we're choosing to harden our hearts. I went to um, a liberal arts college which meant I had to have a certain amount of science credits to graduate. And so my senior year, I took uh, the chemistry of pottery as a class. And I will not lie to you, it was not the most difficult class I had in college. Uh, and part, so part of the class was like learning about how the chemistry of clay worked, which was kind of interesting. And then the second half of the class was like hands-on. You'd actually make pots, you know, so see chemistry in action, I guess. Uh, and so the way that you would do it, if you've, if you've ever worked with clay before, is you have this thing called a pottery wheel, and, uh, and, it's, and it spins around. And you take wet clay and you put it on the pottery wheel and you keep it moving the entire time. So if you want to be able to shape clay, it has to stay moving. 
The moment the wheel stops, the clay starts to harden. And so you gotta keep that thing moving. You gotta you know, be shaping. And as soon as you stop the wheel, as soon as the, the movement stops, the clay starts to harden. This text is saying the same is true for our hearts. The moment we remove them from Christian community, our hearts start to harden in some way. So here's my question. Are you choosing to harden your heart by avoiding Christian community? And hear me, I know it's hard. I mean, community is very, very difficult. Maybe, maybe you've been hurt in community. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you're like me and you have four young kids and it's really hard, <laughs> right? Maybe you, you work crazy hours. Maybe you travel a lot. I get that it's hard. That doesn't mean it's unimportant. You know, we often think in the evangelical church today, if it's hard, it must not be that important. That's like the complete opposite of the Bible. The Bible's like, no, most things that are important are hard. Right? Community is hard, but it is absolutely essential if you're going to maintain a soft heart before the Lord. And I think you know this intuitively. Like, think with me for a second. Think about a time in your life that you were really thriving spiritually, okay? So get that in your head. I'll give you five seconds. All right. Now, let me ask a question. In that season, did you have at least one good Christian friend? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but like if I did, if I said, hey, raise your hand, if that's true, probably 80% of this room would raise their hands. We just kind of know intuitively that Christianity is not a solo sport. We were not designed to follow Jesus in isolation. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. It is a contradiction in terms. Have you ever noticed, this is fascinating, have you ever noticed that when Jesus called his first disciples, he called them in pairs? Andrew and Peter and then James and John. Why did he do it that way? He could have called them one by one. Why did he call them in pairs? Well, I think it's because Man, Jesus wanted us to see that there was, a never, there was never a moment that Jesus had a disciple who wasn't also in community. There was never a moment that Jesus had a disciple who wasn't also in community. And if the apostles needed Christian community, then I think we do too. Right? If, if the founders of the faith needed to be in Christian community, then we do too. You need someone to encourage you and to pray for you and to serve you and sometimes to warn you and to challenge you. You need someone who loves you well enough and deeply enough to say hard things to you. And it'd be like, it is not okay how you talk about your husband. Like, it is not okay how much you travel at work. Like, it is not okay how you're, you know, not raising your children in the, in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. It's not okay how you're treating women. Like, it's just not okay how you're doing that. You're on a pathway that leads to destruction. And I love you enough to be like, get off the pathway. Repent, turn from that, and walk with the Lord. Uh, I heard a fascinating story um, about how diamonds used to be polished. Okay, so any more diamonds are, you know, cut with lasers. But if you know much about diamonds, you know that they're, one of the things that makes them valuable is they're so hard. Like diamonds are almost impossible to shape except with, you know, lasers now. Well, the way that diamonds used to be polished is you would take two diamonds and you'd put them in a container and then you would put them on a machine that would shake the container violently. And what would happen is the diamonds would bang into one another. And it was only the hardness of a diamond that could polish and soften the hardness of another diamond. So two diamonds in this container banging into one another, and what you would get at the end is diamonds that were more polished or more brilliant and had all their rough edges smoothed out. Friends, that is Christian community in your life. Good news, you get to be a diamond in this illustration. Okay, I'm being nice today, right? It's like you are a diamond who's very hard-headed and, and you get put into a container called a missional community with another diamond who's really hard-headed called your friend at church or your spouse, whoever, and then we close the thing, we shake it up. And like life happens and you hurt one another's feelings and you say things that are insensitive and you have different personalities and you don't like the same things. And you're like, I would never like you if you weren't a Christian. You're like, I don't always like you and you are a Christian. You know, like I would not be in community with you if we weren't in the same MC. And God is like, exactly, exactly. 
You need to be polished by other believers, and that's what God wants to do in your life. He, hear, hear me. He wants to smooth out your edges, and he wants to bring a brilliance into your life that can only happen when you're in community with other believers. Right? When we forsake community, we harden our hearts. So here's the question I want to ask you. Are you forsaking community? Is there anyone in your life that knows you well enough to warn you? People at work aren't going to do that. In fact, in most office places, you're not, it's like it's in the bylaws, like you're not allowed to talk about spiritual things, right? People at work aren't going to warn you. People in your CrossFit gym aren't going to warn you. Like your family's probably not going to warn you. you. You need men and women who love you enough and know you well enough to warn you and encourage you with the gospel. Right? That's why we talk about the weekender so much here. Because we want to help you get connected to those relationships. That's why we talk so much about missional communities. Because we want this for you, not from you. Okay, so that's the first thing. We harden our hearts when we forsake community. Here's the second one. We harden our hearts when we treat sin lightly. Jesus told a parable to this end in Luke 19. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The key difference in this parable between these two characters is that the tax collector had an accurate understanding of his sin and the Pharisee did not. The Pharisee treated his sin like it was no big deal. The Pharisee was so busy with his positive self-talk that he forgot to take real accounting for his standing before God. So let me ask you, are you more like the Pharisee or the tax collector? I mean, does your sin bother you? Like, are, are you like disturbed by the motives that well up in your heart? Like, are you willing to sit with the hard, difficult questions about why do I act that way? Let me get really personal for a second. Why is it so hard for me to be excited for my friends when things go well for them? Like, maybe, maybe you really long to be married. It's a good desire. And every time one of your friends gets married, it's very difficult to be happy for them. Why is that? Or for me, I'm pastor of a church. I'm supposed to be a kingdom guy. Why is it so hard for me to be excited for my peers who have larger churches than me? Ugh. Right? Why is it so hard for you to serve your spouse and to like really put her needs before your own? Man, why is it so difficult for you to be generous? Why do you have to be like absolutely moved into generosity? Why, why is your natural disposition just keep it off yourself? Why do you keep going to that website? Why do you keep going to that comfort food? Well, these are not comfortable questions to ask. But the truth is, if we're not careful, we can become like the Pharisee. We can just be so impressed with ourselves that we don't feel a big need for God's grace. And it's, it's hard, honestly, to take sin seriously in our culture right now for two big reasons. The first is everywhere you look, sin is being affirmed, celebrated, and normalized. It just is. I mean, what would, make, would have made us blush 10 years ago is now being turned into multi-season shows on Netflix. It just is. We just need to be careful about the impact that media has on, on our ethical vision of the world. Right? We, we need to ask the question, is how I view sin shaped more by the scriptures or by what I'm streaming? And just so you know, like, media is not neutral, right? Media has an agenda. And I don't say this to be, like, some sort of conservative conspiracy theory guy, but 
This is what uh, the Disney organization came out and, and said recently. Um, they said, we intentionally insert what they call queerness and LGBTQ storylines into their content. I didn't make that up. You can find it online. What is that? Well, that's an agenda. They, they, they want to celebrate and affirm a particular lifestyle that if we're going to be captured, captured to the word of God, we have to graciously and compassionately say, like, hey, no, that's wrong and that's sin. You can apply this to any, any number of issues to, man, how do we think about violence? Just like, just like think about the most popular shows on your streaming thing. Like, they usually have to do with lots of people dying. And we just, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's like how we think about fidelity in marriage. How many shows, like one of the major storylines is like someone's cheating on their spouse. And they're like the good guy. Individualism, materialism. I mean, you just, you know, you can pile up the themes. I'm not here to, to lay down some rule about what you can and can't watch. I'm just here to say we need to be thoughtful. We just need to be thoughtful and, and through the leadership of the spirit and for you and your family decide like, man, how are we going to consume media in a way that is beneficial and, and, and builds up rather than in a way that maybe makes it harder for us to take sin seriously? Because here's what can happen. We can be so shaped by the media we intake that when we actually read what the Bible says about sin, it shocks us. We're like, whoa, like, come on, God, like you're being a little bit over the top. So is the problem with the scriptures, you think, or, do you, or is the problem with our view of sin? I mean, it's obvious, right? It's probably with our view of sin. So that's the first thing. It's very hard to take sin seriously because our culture treats it flippantly. The second reason it's hard for us to take our own personal sin seriously is that from a very young age, we've been told that our primary problem is low self-esteem. And that the reason that we have issues is because we don't, you know, think highly enough of ourselves, we don't love ourselves enough, we don't approve ourselves enough. And so usually, if, you know, if you go to secular therapy, the the usual prescription is you need to value yourself more and you need to, you know, practice positive self-talk and you, and you need to get, show yourself grace and you need to build yourself up. Um, and there are genuinely people who, who really struggle with low self-worth. And, and that's, a, that's a real thing. And they need to hear, man, God knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Man, you, are, you have dignity and worth because God created you. That's definitely a category of people. But in my experience, the, the problem I think most of us have is not that we have too low of a view of ourselves. I think usually it's that we have too high a view of ourselves, right? Like, that, like that's, why I don't, that's why I think I'm always right, right? Isn't that why you assume you're right in an argument? Because you just have this, how could I be wrong all 34 years of me with my extensive perspective and all my education, you know? It's just, we just assume that we're right, everyone else is wrong. Or like sometimes you get in these environments and you're like, why is it that students all think their professors are dumb? It's like, you're dumb. They're not dumb. You know, it's like, that's why they're there. Well, like, why do you think your, your boss is an idiot? Because you have this massive view of yourself, right? I would never do it that way. Yeah, okay. Like, let's wait and see until you're... This, this really came home to me when I became a lead pastor. I, I felt like I needed to send an email every day to my former pastors and be like, I'm so sorry. You know, because like when you're a lead pastor, you're like, this isn't how I would do it, you know? And then you become a pastor, you're like, ah, I'm such an idiot, you know? Um, we, just, we tend to have this like really hyperinflated view of ourselves. That's why we have such a hard time receiving rebuke. Oh my God, we're like hypersensitive to rebuke anymore. It's, it's like, you know, you know the old, the old uh, the compliment sandwich, you know what I'm talking about? It's like, and you know it's coming, you know, it's like compliment, criticism, compliment. It's like, I feel like we need, we have to have double stuffed Oreos now. It's like compliment, compliment, slight criticism, compliment, compliment, it's not that big of a deal. Like that's what we do. Because we just have this really exalted view of ourselves. And you put those things together, you put like, okay, sin is normalized. We have a high view of ourselves. Man, it just seems intense to actually take our sin seriously. And if you go to a church that preaches about sin, it feels really over the top. It's just like, whoa, like no one is telling me this. I've had so many people 
come up to me and be like, thank you so much for talking about sin. And I'm like, what do other pastors talk about? You know, like, but it's just like a weird thing. But so maybe you're thinking like, Josh, why is this such a big deal? Why are you being so like old school about this? Here's the reason. When we have a small view of sin, we'll have a small view of the cross. You understand the connection? You see, the more acquainted I am with my sin and with just the wickedness of my motives and with the darkness of my heart, the more quickly I'm gonna run to Jesus. I'm gonna say, you're my only refuge. You are my rock. You are my salvation. And the more grateful I'm gonna be for God's grace in my life. And the more I'm gonna raise my hands in worship and say, Lord, you are gracious and kind to me. When I have a large view of my sin, I have a large view of the cross and a large view of God's grace. So the question I just wanna ask you is, where do you need to take your sin more seriously? Where have you been acting like sin is not a big deal in your life? How have you been operating like you're free to pick and choose from God's word? Where have you been calling indiscretion what the Bible calls transgression? Where have you been rationalizing sin in your life or maybe in your spouse's life or maybe in your kids' lives? Where do you need to become more biblical in how you think about your sin? If you're anything like me, the idea of doing that is really scary. Because when you're really honest, it makes you feel terrible. Like it makes you feel ashamed. It makes you feel broken. It makes you feel weak. It makes you feel like, I just, when you really dig into your heart motives, like why do I really do things? You're like, man, I, like there's no way that God could love me. There's no way if people really knew how I operate that anyone would love me. And friend, if that's you, if you can relate with that, I, I want you to lock in with me for the next two minutes. Because here's the thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes it safe for you to take your sin seriously. That's what the gospel does in a unique way. Every other religion does not make it safe to take your sin seriously. Because every other religion says, if you're honest about your sin, God will never love you. If you're honest about your sin with other people, everyone will reject you. But here's what the gospel says. This is, this is remarkable. On the one hand, your sin is so pervasive and hateful that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to die to pay for it. It's extraordinarily humbling. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, you are so valuable to God. Your soul is of such worth to your creator. Your redemption is of such inexpressible value that Jesus Christ was willing to die for it. The gospel says that you are far more sinful than you want to admit, but at the same time, far more loved than you ever hoped. And when you grasp that truth, I mean, that really takes hold in your life. It changes you. It empowers you to take ownership for your sin. It motivates you to go into Christian community and say, I need help. I need to be warned. I need to be encouraged. Man, it keeps your heart soft before the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you warn us, that you warn us for our good, that you warn us because you love us, and that you warn us because your compassion is warm towards us. Thank you for the truth of the Bible, that the Bible is a very honest book, that the Bible is honest about our condition, but it's also honest about our hope in Christ. Lord, I pray for and anyone here today that, uh, Lord, is just feeling overwhelmed by the weight of their sin, by the shame that they feel, that they would be encouraged and set free by the grace of the gospel. Pray for others of us here that are hard-hearted, that are bristling at this sermon right now, that, man, we'd be soft-hearted, Lord, that we would repent, that we would experience the renewal and the refreshing that comes from walking in line with the truth. Jesus, thank you that your gospel makes it safe for us to take sin seriously. And I pray that we'd be a church that does that. For all this in your name.